I want you to just look on the board before now we move on into some other aspects following your way to leadership. The subtitle is Understanding Spiritual Authority because that's really what it's all about. God is a God of authority. Satan is the originator of all rebellion. Authority and honoring authority will bring blessing. A life of rebellion will bring destruction. It's a portrait of two Adams. The first Adam, notice attitude always comes first. All actions are born out of attitudes. What does God really take time to work on in our lives? Attitudes. And a lot of times, religion focuses on action. The kingdom focuses on attitudes. So that's why we never really know how God may be dealing with somebody because all we could see is their actions. You could do the right thing with the wrong attitude. Come on. And while everybody's applauding the action, God's dealing with the attitude. You could do things to be seen of men. You could do things because you have an agenda. The action, there's no problem with the action, but God searches the heart. And that's why the Word of God is sharper, more powerful, quicker than any two-edged sword. The anointed Word, it goes out. What does it do? It divides between what? Soul and spirit. It brings a division. Jesus said, I've come to bring a division. A sword. He's talking about his word. He wasn't talking about cutting, hacking people up. He rebuked Peter for doing that. He's talking about his word. His word is a sword. He said, I've come to set a sword in the earth. And so it divides between soul and spirit. The word searches us. It locates us. And it goes on to say, it divides between the joint and the marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's why when... <clears throat> There's nothing like the Word of God in the church. The place of the anointed Word could, should never be replaced with a bunch of other things, come on, that may give us greater enjoyment. But when a man or a woman of God who's hearing from God opens up that Word, I'm going to tell you something. Let the sword enter in. You're sitting there and you think, my God, he's preaching to me. Have you ever had that? You know, I've lived on that side, you know. I've, oh, my God. And, and your wife knows he's preaching to you, and she's sitting right next to you. And you're there looking like Joe Christian, but inside that word is dividing the soul and spirit, and it's discerning those thoughts and the intents of the heart. Very important. An illustration of two Adams. The first Adam had an attitude of rebellion when he, when he took it. God said, don't touch it. That was God's verdict. The moment he took it, okay, before he ever took it, there had to be an attitude of rebellion. Rebellion always leads to disobedience. That's the action. And wherever there's disobedience, if it's not rectified, it will always bring about a fall. So rebellion to disobedience produces a fall. It's an equation you can count on. That's why repentance is such a gift. Repentance helps us to change the equation, right? The second Adam, who is Jesus, we have his attitude was one of submission. I come, I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. How many know that's submission? Which led to a life of what? Obedience. He became obedient unto death. Even when obedience for him meant a bloody cross. 
he still embraced it because it was the fruit of an obedient life, which brought about redemption. Okay. So whenever there's an attitude of submission, that will always be demonstrated by actions of obedience. And wherever you have submission and obedience, you will always then bring forth the fruit of redemption and the fruit of God's working. Fruit of God's working. Fruit of God's working. That's why I say, and I say again, that there is no greater thing you could ever offer to God than a heart that's in submission and a life that's in obedience to God's authority, wherever that authority is. When I come to churches, you know, I am received in the fivefold office of a prophet in some places apostolically to help with leadership. But whatever house I go to, he's my dear friend. These are my dear friends for life. But I recognize this is not Phil and Mary. This is Pastor Phil, or in this case, really, Apostle Phil. He is the one that was sent, set things in order, and has been the overseer of this house. So when I come, I enjoy him as my friend, but I come under that authority. So I said, is this okay? That's why I said, is this okay? Is that right? Because really, I recognize the only way God operates where there is no authority. You know, there are some folks, I don't want to get off on this, we need to, but some folks have this idea of church. We could just all kind of meet in the living room. Nobody's in charge. The Holy Spirit's in charge. We don't really use titles and pastor and all of this. And I understand all that because there's the other side of the scope. But I'm going to tell you something. Anything God's involved in, there's got to be authority. That's like having a home and saying, you know what, forget father and mother. Let's just all get along and the kids and, you know, we're just all going to sit around and hold hands. We're going to have a blessed home. You're going to have a mess. And there's going to be a lot of problems and a lot of hurt. One of the ways you know that God is operating and that God's signature is on something is because there's always order to anything God does. Always order to anything God does. So it's important to receive each other in the Lord. No, no man after the flesh. After the flesh, this is Phil and Mary from Brooklyn, Long Island, then Long Island. But after the Spirit, it's who their placement is in God. Now, if I can recognize that and come into alignment, if God's called me to be with them, come into, I'm using this as an example, then guess what? My arm just got back into its place. And I can function in strength in what God's called me to do because I came under proper headship. It's a spiritual thing. Spiritual thing. It's very important. So this is the illustration. We could either follow the first Adam and end up like this, or by God's Holy Spirit, follow in the footsteps. He left us an example of the patterned son and live a life like this, and at the end of our days, have good fruit. Amen? Okay. Let's take an example. Let's look at some examples before lunch in the Old Testament of rebellion. And it's very important. We can learn some lessons. I'd like you to go to... We're going to look at some lessons of, from the life of Noah. Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to learn some really good lessons from these lives. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. 
Well, look, go to verse 5. God saw, Genesis 6 and 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 8, read it with me. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And without going through all the scriptures, you know the story of Noah. In the midst of the chaos, God found an instrument he could work his purposes through. Because no matter what we see, how many know that what God declared from the beginning, his purposes will prevail in the earth. And he always works them through a remnant, even if the remnant is one person. Because that's how God operates. God could have populated the earth from the beginning with 7 billion people, but God wanted a population, so he put the seed of it in one man. And that's the way God operates. He's a God that operates by seed. So God, everybody's wicked, evil. The earth is, oh my God, this is... This is so far. The rebellion has spread like cancer. But there's a man. There's a man that finds grace in the eyes of God. And God is going to continue to work his work through this man called Noah. Well, you know the story of Noah. Noah is a man that uh, is commissioned by God. He builds the ark. And God tells him about the judgment that's coming and it's going to rain. And he preaches 120 years working all the specs. How many know that he had to be true to God's pattern? And he was true to God's pattern and he was in submission to God. And because of that, the Bible says in Hebrews, he obeyed God to the saving of his household. Because you had one father that would not be moved and simply obey God, it resulted in the salvation of his household. And nobody else got saved. You know, who, you, know you can't imagine big in the building this boat. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Come on, he had to think about some of the crowd, the harvest God's going to give him. He didn't know until later it was going to be some animals. I mean, he probably thought, by my neighbors, I think the whole block's going to get saved. Give them a few years. Look at this boat. Look how big it is. It was like three football feet. I mean, just unbelievable. And it's, and it's to keep alive the seed of animals. Only eight people God was just going to preserve a remnant and bring them into a new world. Come on now. Woo! I need to just restrain myself because I want to say something. But anyway, what we have here, I want to go, I want you to write in your notes. Let's take a look at some of the lessons from the life of Noah. He finds grace in the eyes of God. God begins to work, but we still have this law of reproduction. That doesn't mean Noah was perfect. He's still a fallen man, right? Because he could trace his beginnings back to Adam. Now go to uh, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. The flood came. The waters are dissipated. The ark is landed. And here we are in Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply. Sounds like what he told Adam, right? And replenish the earth. Look at verse 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon the fowl of the air, upon everything that moves the earth. Into your hand are they delivered. Is that authority or what? 
You're going to be the man that has authority in this new world. I gave it to Adam in the old world. I cleansed that world. You're the new man. And the fear of you, the dread of you, everything's delivered into your hand. Somebody say no is in authority. Okay. He found grace in the eyes of God. God simply selected Noah. And then he goes on. Now, I want you to go look at verse 20 of the same chapter. Of verse 20. Noah began to be a husbandman. He was a gardener. And he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine. And as a result, he was drunken and he was uncovered within his tent. I like to say it this way. He got drunk on his own success. He was enjoying the fruit of what he planted. And he was getting intoxicated with his own success. And before you know it, he's acting the fool. And he is uncovered. And he's in his tent. And look who comes walking by. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now the word saw, reha, is actually means to enjoy seeing a thing. It's to look upon something with joy. So in other words, he wasn't shocked nor ashamed. There was some kind of enjoyment he was gaining as he viewed the fall of his father. And he's looking at him, man. He enjoyed it so much, he wanted to spread the word. You wouldn't believe what dad is doing. He is drunk. Now, did they see him drunk? No. He is naked. Did they see him naked? No. But now they know all of dad's fallen business because there's one brother that enjoyed dad's fall. And so he starts spreading the knowledge of dad's fall all over. So that's spreading the news. Okay? And then we find verse 23. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were backward that they wouldn't even see their father's nakedness. Wow, how one brother acted versus two brothers. Noah awoke from his wine. He got sober, knew what his young son had done. Okay, he said, Cursed be Canaan. He's going to be a servant of servants, shall be unto his brethren so far, and then blessing to his other brethren. Okay, but what I want to see here is this. First of all, we have a fall. Now, all sins are not equal. There's three words for sin. One word means to miss the mark. It means I'm shooting for the mark, but I miss it. That's sin, to miss the mark. Another sin, another word, transgression, means I know what's expected and I do not adhere to the law. It's the transgression of the law. Another one is iniquity, which means I'm twisted. No matter how much I try to hit the mark, my arrows are bent. I'm twisted. So all sins are not equal in that they're different. Noah's sin was a sin of the flesh. Drunkenness is listed as a sin of the flesh. It's not equal to the sin of rebellion. It was a sin to the weakness of the flesh. Now, all sin has problems, but not all sins are equal. So here's Noah, and he partook of that wine. Now, we already know he doesn't have a life of drunkenness. That's, the Bible says he was an upright man. So this was an isolated case 
where this man indulged himself in the harvest of what he planted, drank a little too much, and before you know it, he, this is the weakness and the sin of the flesh. But it exposed a worse sin. And that was the sin of rebellion. Does God judge Noah? No. That's what I said. Wherever you see rebellion, you'll always see the greatest judgment of God. Let me put it in context of where we live. I'm going to make a statement. God has more patience for a stupid pastor than he does for a rebellious sheep. How many know pastors could be stupid? I is one. And there's things that I've said, there's things that I've done, because guess what? All God has to work with are fallen people. And we could do stupid things, we could have to retract from saying things, and, and, just, just a, and I'm saying it facetious in a way to reinforce a point. There can be, now there could be rebellion there, but I'm not saying, what I'm saying is what Noah had was stupid. Ridiculous. It wasn't a lifelong issue. It was ridiculous. But what Ham had was a problem. He enjoyed the fall of his father and then spread the news. And, but the other brothers, so what we find is, here's the question. When a leader falls, will you pass the test? His fall became their test. One man failed. Two men passed. They both responded differently to the man's fall. He had authority in their life. One said, that's crazy, and I'm going to tell everybody about that fall. Two said, dad fall? I don't even want to look at it. At the end of the day, that man got cursed, and these two got blessed. Come on. And this man was sorry that he ever drank in the first place. So here's the question. When a leader falls, and here we are, under authority, and all of this, will you pass the test? How do you respond? How do you react? How do you act? Have fervent love among yourselves, for love covereth. Not a multitude of issues. We call sins a multitude of sins. Love covereth a multitude of sins. That's what they did. And as a result of their action, they secured blessing for their seed and down their line. You know, it's amazing how we respond could secure blessing or introduce hurt even to the generations beyond us. Come on, it's very important for us to see this. So it was the test. So what we learn here, look, if you go, go to page 8, points to remember, those in authority are not without fault. When exposed to the faults of a leader, our character is being tested. A rebellious heart enjoys seeing and talking about the faults of those in authority. The sin of rebellion is dealt with more severely by God than sins which result from the weakness of the flesh. So when leaders fall, will you pass the test? That's one great example. Lessons we learn. Go to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers 12. Now we have an interesting story here. In Numbers chapter 12, we've got an entire family that's serving in the same ministry. 
How many know there could be some tests with that? Especially when it's the younger brother that's been chosen to be the leader of the older sister and the older brother. We've got Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Every one of them are leaders. Aaron is a leader of the priests. Miriam is a leader of the women, and she's called a prophetess. Moses is a leader of them all, and he's the baby brother. In fact, if it wasn't for Miriam, remember when Moses was sent down the Nile? Who was watching over her baby brother? Miriam was watching. Who was the one that, that intervened to make sure this baby would be protected? Miriam was. So Miriam was like a mother to Moses. But in the work of God, age doesn't mean anything. God selected Moses to be the leader over everyone, including older sister and older brother. And they're going, they're flowing okay. Everything seems to be working okay until younger brother chooses a wife the older sister doesn't like. They don't like a personal choice he made. And now let's look at Numbers 12. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he married an Ethiopian woman. How many would believe he married an Ethiopian woman? Yeah, he did. They said, Had the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord what? Here's the problem. We know who we are after the flesh. I don't like the choice he made of wife. Now, he didn't commit a sin. How many know when they came out, they came out a mixed multitude? So there's an Ethiopian. The only, one, the only thing God commanded was that they would not take of the daughters of the Canaanites. But she's Ethiopian. So here we have a mixed marriage. And they don't like it. They want to know why he didn't marry a nice young Jewish girl. Come on. But he married an Ethiopian girl. So now they start talking. They said, uh, you know, this girl that he married, you know, he's our leader. I mean, Aaron, you're the head of the priest. I'm a prophetess, and uh, maybe God doesn't just talk through Moses. You know, maybe, maybe, and they start talking like this, but guess what? God heard that conversation. Now, the interesting thing is not so much that God heard it, it's what God says about it. And look what it says here. In verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, unto Aaron and Miriam, said, The three of you, come on out here. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. He called Aaron and Miriam, and they came both forth. He said, Hear now my words. Hear my words. You all been talking? Now it's time for me to talk. He said, If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to that prophet in visions. I'll speak to him in a dream. He said, but my servant, not your brother. He didn't say, but your brother, Mo my servant, Moses. We need to get something straight here. I could care less about how you think your brother is. He's my servant. And you're talking about my servant. My servant Moses is not just like any old prophet. And Miriam was called a prophetess, and so was Aaron. God told Moses, remember when Moses says, I'm slow of speech? I can't do it. I can't talk. I'm slow of speech. He said, take Aaron, right? He said, you're going to take the words and put it in his mouth. And here's what God said. 
You will be a God unto him, and he shall be a prophet unto you. Meaning, I'll use him as the mouthpiece, but you're going to give him what the word is because you're going to get it from me. So here, God says, I can speak to prophets. He's really talking to them. Dreams and vision. But your brother, my servant, is not in that category. For as a man speaks to a friend face to face, mouth to mouth, my words go directly in his mouth. So while you're fussing about your brother, I need to remind you in the work of God, he's my servant. And as a result of that, I think the reason why it says now Moses, because it seems to be inserted, now Moses was the very meek above all the men of the earth. Why would it give us that commentary on Moses? Because he was so meek, he didn't defend himself. We'll see that in the next one. Moses never defended himself. He was so meek. So that's why God came on the scene. How many know when you don't defend yourself, you get room for God to come in and vindicate? So then, as a result, Miriam, if we continue to read, she gets struck with leprosy. She's put out of the camp for seven days. So we have some points to remember. Let's look on bottom of eight. We may not always agree or even like the personal choices made by leaders over us, but we should never let a personal conflict cause us to forget their place of authority that they occupy. That's very important. We may not agree when it comes to certain issues, but don't ever let that blind you to the spiritual place. Hey, I grew up, I didn't always agree with my parents, but I couldn't let that blind me who they were. Even when we came to a disagreement at the end of the day I've got to obey because they have authority now if I let that block my thinking if I let that get then I start acting rebellious how many know sparks are going to fly and it's going to be problems and I'm going to create havoc in the home and I'm going to invite and incur the wrath of authority on my life even though we may not agree now look it takes real spiritual authority to be able to share and enjoy a close companionship with a leader while always holding in high regard their place of authority God has given them. It takes real spiritual maturity to be able to shoot golf with Pastor Phil and never lose sight. This is Pastor. It takes maturity. Some people can't do it. They get too close and the authority goes out the window. We'll see later on about the kind of affection there should be. God's doing in Pastor Mike's life. And most, many of you, you know, some of you may not, but in the congregation, well, they know Brother Mike from way back when. And me and Mike, man, we were playing music together. Remember, remember about 10 years ago, we, yeah, brother, we had some great times. But you know what? Are they going to struggle with Pastor Mike? Or when Pastor Mike, when we used to hang out, but now Pastor Mike says, you know, I think we're going to do this and do that. And you don't agree with Pastor Mike, who just used to be Brother Mike, when you guys used to shoot hoops together. Come on! It takes real spiritual maturity to be able to enjoy one another while you never lose sight of spiritual placement in the kingdom. Say amen. Okay.
Let's go to number 16. What time is it? Where, where? Oh, 11.53. Okay. Numbers chapter 16. Now we have a lesson from Korah. Now, you know what's interesting is you turn to number 16. Miriam was outside of the tent for seven days because of leprosy. She was placed in, someone say, isolation. Whenever there's rebellion, the New Testament says, mark those that cause division and withdraw yourselves from them. And we got this idea of, we're just supposed to love everybody and brother so on. No, no, there's got to be isolation because of the fact God hates discord. And until there is a repentance, she was outside. Now, what did Moses do? Moses didn't say, yeah, kill her. What does he do? The leader that he is, he prays for her. He prays her. He wants her restoration. And once the leprosy clears up, she's admitted back into her place, and we move on with the plan of God. But we see that spiritually also. That's why Apostles says, put this one out, and that one out, and this one, and mark this one that causes division, those that do not receive the commandments. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump because it's really not, you're seeing a personal issue, it's a spiritual issue. And it could be like a cancer because evil communications corrupt good manners. And when you have somebody that's got leprosy, how I many know oh, it's contagious? And they start speaking evil, and they're undermining authority. That leprosy can get on you. And next thing you know, your question, yeah, I think you're right. And before you know it, it begins to spread because the problem is not a natural one. It's a spiritual one. And so it's got to be dealt with in the spirit. That's why people in the flesh who are not spiritual can never understand when actions are taken by spiritual authority. It's always misjudged. Because there are people in the flesh just saying, I just can't understand why, we just can't get along, and so on and so forth. And they're, they're in the flesh and they're carnal and they don't understand actions that are taken when they are taken in the right spirit. Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Isar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. Notice that. They rose up before Moses with about children of Israel, 250 princes famous in the congregation, men of renown. Verse 3, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And what did they say? Oh, you guys take too much upon you. The whole congregation's holy. We're all anointed. We all hear from God. Every one of them, you lift yourself up above the congregation. What did Moses do? He fell on his face. And you go on to read and you see how God judged Korah. Now, I'm not just picking Bible examples. The Bible says in the New Testament, in Jude, that we are to beware of the spirit of Korah. Now, even though those men are long dead, their spirit still lives. Even though Jezebel is long dead, the spirit of Jezebel right. still lives. Because it's not about a woman. A man could have a spirit of Jezebel. It's a spirit. It's about control, intimidation, domination. Come on. And Korah, 
these are men that literally are associated with a certain expression, and that's why we're warned in the New Testament, don't walk in the way of Korah. What did they do? These were people of leadership. And they were discontent with their place of leadership. They were famous in the congregation. And they gathered unto them. They took men. When rebellion is at work, it will always incite a gathering. It will always do that. Let me tell you something. People that start churches, they may be gifted and anointed, but if they're starting in the spirit of rebellion, they're going to try to get people out of churches to fill their churches. When you are moving in your anointing and the timing of God, all you got to do is obey and God begins to add people to your life. But when you got to try to incite gatherings, that means the flesh is operating and rebellion is behind it. Come on now. And you see this. I mean, I've seen this over the years in the congregation. I've seen people raise, you know, rise up. And you ever have people, they come and they'll say, you know what? And they're nameless people. But in order to try to build their case, they'll let you know that there are people that feel the same way they do. Exactly right. Why? They got a gathering. They got a gathering. You know, we just feel like there's no love in this. So we just feel like, who's the we? What are you talking about? Well, it's a gathering. Because there really is no legitimate case. And so to try to make a case legitimate, they have got to try to qualify it by getting numbers around it. What does Moses do? Does he get a gathering? No, he falls on his face before God. He said, you know what? At the end of the day, I didn't ask for the job. You can't take the job. Let's let God judge everything. Amen? Wow. Let's let God judge everything. And so that's what they do. Now, we are warned concerning that. I'd like you to look at these two scriptures before we go to lunch. Uh, go with me. Go with me to Second Peter. Second Peter 2, 9 through 13. Second Peter 2, 9 through thir 13. <clears throat> and look what it says. Second Peter 2, 9-13. Then the Lord know, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation to reserve the who? Okay, we're talking about the unjust under the punishment for the day of judgment. Let's go to verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. And what do they do? They despise authority. They are presumptuous. What else are they? Uh-oh, Satan principle. Self-willed. Of course they despise authority. As long as your will, you are self-willed, you will despise government at every level. A flow of authority. They are self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of what? Dignitaries. A dignitary is any individual of whom honor has been conferred. So how many know your pastor is a dignitary? We all are dignitaries because we're called ambassadors. So we all have levels of authority. In this world, we've been commissioned by Christ, right? 
and given his authority to go and preach in his name. We are ambassadors. We're dignitaries. But there's level of dignitaries. So anybody that's had authority conferred, honor conferred upon them, they say, he said, some of these people, these unjust people that are in the church, they are self-willed. And one of the ways you know they're self-willed is that they, they don't have any problem speaking evil upon those that have authority. Same thing would happen with Aaron and Moses. Same thing that happened with Korah. Now, go to Jude. It's the same, same warning. Now, we're looking at an Old Testament example, but notice it's in the New Testament. These are things we've got to be aware of. If you go to Jude, verse 8. There's only one chapter in Jude. Go to verse 8. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. What do they do? They reject authority. And notice what's next. Speak evil of dignitaries. Jude was warning the church of those that are mixed in the church. He said you could always know them. They hate authority. They hate government. And they will speak very lightly. There's no reverence. There's no honor in how they deal with authority. He said they're, they're in your numbers. That's why he's warning. Go to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. Paul was speaking before the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were people that Jesus really dealt with. Right? Sure he did. Now you got Paul standing before the Pharisees. Look at chapter 23. Let me catch it. Well, let me go there. Acts chapter 23. Bring it up there if you would on the screen. Verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Let's keep going. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him, Paul, to punch him in the mouth. Look at verse 4. Third, 3. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Okay. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and you command me to be punched contrary to the law. Verse 4. And those who stood by, what did they say to Paul? Do you revile God's high priest? What did he say in verse 5? I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written. Read it with me. Now, this is an apostle. And I guarantee you that God was working and he was with the apostle and not that high priest. But because he sat in a place that God had established for his purposes, Paul basically said, I'm sorry. I, I acted wrong. I didn't even realize it. And then he quoted, don't ever speak evil of the ruler of the people. Jesus, Jesus dealt with the Pharisees unmercilessly because of their pride, because their hypocrisy. Then he tells his disciples, do what they say, but don't do what they do. For they sit in Moses' seat. This is what he said. Can I take, unlock this? Or? Yeah, if you unlock this. Yeah, I got it. These guys are hypocrites. These guys are terrible. But here's what I want you to submit to and honor the chair. Honor the chair. 
because God established the chair. Now God's going to judge the one that sits in this chair. But I want you to understand they sit in a chair. So even if you disagree, there's a proper way to disagree honorably. Why? They're in the chair. And this is what we've got to discern in the home, in the church, who's sitting in the chair. Who's got the chair? He sit in the chair? I don't care. I may not like his colors. I may not like his personal preferences. I may not, oh, God, all those things. I got one question. Is he in the chair? If he's in the chair, then it requires of me before God to respond a certain way because of that chair. For they sit in Moses' seat. That's the issue. So he said, beware of those that despise government and they speak evil. Now, after we come back from lunch, we looked at rebellion. We looked at different examples of rebellion and uh, different lessons we could learn. When we come back, we'll consider just for a little bit the life of David. He is, to me, he is the profound example of submission and coming into a place of honor because of a pathway of submission he honored all of his life.